Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm very happy to have Andrew Jasko on the show. Andrew is a Princeton Seminary-educated former minister who has a master's in divinity. Andrew had to leave his religious faith and community because of the severe psychological trauma he experienced. After spending years healing his trauma and helping hundreds of people transform their lives, he founded his organization, Life After Dogma, to continue his expertise in healing religious trauma, where Andrew's clients hire him to assist them in healing and finding healthy, authentic, spiritual, or secular connections that suit them. Here's Andrew now. I'm very happy to have Andrew Jesko on the show today. There's so much to talk about. So can you please just take a moment and introduce yourself and then we'll start chatting. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So I grew up as the son of a Pentecostal minister and was really, really heavily involved in that. It was really primarily informed my identity and my vocation, my community. And it was a total identity system for me, as it often is. And uh, my mother had a prophecy about me before I was born that I was going to be this great man of God. And so I had that kind of expectation, but it really suited me as well because I'm a people person. I like to speak and write and just... So the vocation of minister really felt like something that I wanted to do. And I went to Wheaton College, studied Bible and theology. That's an evangelical Christian school. And then became an associate minister and studied Bible and theology at Princeton Seminary. And was planning to become a missionary to India to convert Hindus and Muslims to Christianity to fulfill the kind of religious imperialistic vision, religious colonialist vision of the Bible and of evangelical Christianity. And we believed that Jesus was going to come back once every distinct ethno-linguistic group of people had heard the gospel and had a church within their group. So I was going to do that. I was really excited about it. It was my passion. I was obsessed with it. I did some short-term missionary work in India. But then I had a rude awakening, a very rude awakening. I was suffering from a number of different mental health issues, anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of internal torment about my sexual desires and them all being evil and sinful and feeling like sexuality was a curse from God because it was something that was dangerous enough to potentially throw me into hell if I were to act on it. And it was always calling me and I could never seem to quite defeat it. And so here was this kind of borderline satanic urge from God in my body that I couldn't make sense of. And so I also just had a really low self-esteem and So I really started questioning my religion because I wanted to get healthier, because I wanted to have some internal peace. And then I began to see that my religious beliefs were causing so much of my mental health distress. And that led me to question more on an intellectual level as well. And it took me a period of about three years of trying harder to make the religion work 
and, uh, you know, feeling like maybe I'm just not doing it well enough, or maybe there's a different version of Christianity that will work. So I tried out more progressive versions of Christianity and uh, gave up my dream to be a missionary to India and became a minister in New York. And then one day I woke up and realized I'm not a Christian and I'm no longer afraid. But then my life kind of fell to pieces in a lot of other domains because the experience of coming out of the religion was just as traumatic as some of the beliefs within the religion. And I ended up uh, really isolating from my community because I felt very pressured by them, pressured to reconvert. Or I didn't feel comfortable interacting with them. I moved across the country to California to start over and went into this spiral of feeling very disconnected, like I'd lost this grandiose sense of meaning and purpose and at least idea of spirituality, although I didn't really have many spiritual experiences or not in the form that I have them now, no what I would consider to be expanded states of consciousness or unitive experiences. It was very much a kind of a, a pseudo-spirituality, a psychological manipulation, suggestibility, emotional hype, things like that. And so I felt very isolated and became a a certain kind of an atheist, because that's what the ex-religious community who helped me recover was emphasizing, uh, that there was no such thing as spirituality, that it's all superstitious, it's all the same as religion, it's all made up. So I ended up reintegrating spirituality initially through working with psilocybin mushrooms, psychedelics, because I had heard about how powerful they could be to treat trauma. And I'd heard about the scientific studies on that. And what I discovered was that some of the most powerful tools that I found for healing trauma also produced mystical, spiritual-type experiences. So then I began to meditate as well and use other means and come to what I consider to be a more integrated state. And now I'm just now finishing my master's in counseling. So we'll be coming an associate therapist in the near future. And um, I'm working and coaching with people who are healing from religious trauma. I'm wondering then if we can go back to talking about Pentecostal, evangelical, if you can define what these things are and how they're different from each other. So to really simplify it, evangelical Christians take kind of a literalist view of the Bible. They believe in biblical inerrancy and infallibility, meaning that the Bible contains no errors and that everything that it teaches is true and that the Bible is the sole and sufficient revelation of God. And they also are exclusivist, uh, meaning they believe that their interpretation of the Bible is the only means of salvation, that all other religions that have a different interpretation are false and are evil, are under the influence and control of the devil, literally. They also highly emphasize world evangelism and conversion because of that belief that this is the only way to be saved. And they also have a, a very very foundational view of, of the role of hell, that, that hell and divine judgment and divine wrath are really very, very core to this ideology. And so Pentecostalism 
is also evangelical. Pentecostals are evangelicals, but they also have this added dimension, this emphasis on something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they would say it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. So there's this second kind of iteration of the Christian uh, for Pentecostal. There's this almost this, this kind of Christian up-leveling of superpowers that happens when this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. They believe that this is a gift given for the end times Christians to give them supernatural power and authority and gifts in order to evangelize the world, and that when that world evangelism happens, Jesus will come back for the second time. So they believe that this gift of supernatural power happens with speaking in tongues, And evangelicals don't necessarily believe that, but they can. And if they do, then they're considered either charismatic or Pentecostal Christians. Okay. Very interesting. Because I think there's so many different permutations, but it's really good to be able to get a definition and also the the differences. Yeah. You know, I deal with a lot of people trying to evangelize me, which I've talked about on the show before, um, having a, a home that has a mezuzah, which is this sort of Jewish symbol on the outside of, it makes me a target for a lot of people wanting to save me or needing to save me. or And I've been called many things that I am an incomplete Jew. This is for people who uh, consider themselves to be kind of mm, people who are Christian missionaries, but also see themselves as Jewish and now completed Jews or whatever else. And that somehow I'm not enough and I'm not protected. And and I, I see that there is this sense of real purpose, but almost urgency in a lot of people's eyes when they come to my door and they they won't let up. You have to take this pamphlet. You have, Like this is life or death. And it's so interesting because I really just want them to stop coming to my door and leaving things, but also they'll do it on on very like holy days in the Jewish year. Suddenly I'm being evangelized to. It doesn't feel great, but I see the sincerity and a sense of that kind of urgency. And maybe with this sort of looming idea of the end times and who's going to be saved and who isn't, that there is this fire that's lit in people. Is that something that you experienced? A hundred percent. I mean, if you really believe what's being taught, then evangelism is going to be the most urgent thing. And in some ways, the only urgent thing, because eternal torture is on the line. And they raised us with these vivid, vivid portrayals of people burning in eternal fire forever. They would give dramatized plays and all kinds of media and intense detailed descriptions of what it might be like to burn in hell forever. And, you know, so as a young child, that's psychological abuse on a very severe level, I would consider it that anyway. I mean, it, and a child doesn't have the ability to really differentiate when when their parent is telling them, you know, God's going to punish you or burn you with fire forever for having bad thoughts, which are often just normal, healthy human behaviors and part of normal development. So I think then children can associate that with their parents too. And, and, and it's, it's verbal abuse, it's psychological abuse, it's spiritual abuse. Right. Really fear is at the core of these religions in a very deep way. And there's a mixture of fear and love. And I would say that characterizes abuse is that mixture because 
if it's all fear and if it's all harm, then not many people are going to stay. It's going to become obvious that this is abusive. But if we're also saying we love you unconditionally, God will take care of you, God will protect you. But if you leave me, I'm going to burn you and I'm going to kill you, which they literally say, uh, you know, then that that is really confusing and highly motivating. It's an extreme. I mean, there's nothing more motivational than, than this core level of unsafety and also paranoia. Um, not only that you're unsafe, but that everyone around you is unsafe and that you're responsible for their salvation. Wow. And then if you're responsible and you cannot convert someone, then what do you worry about? What do you worry about happening to you or how God is going to view you? It's kind of taught that you're responsible to proclaim the message. And uh, if you don't, their blood will be on, on, your, on your head. That comes out of a Bible passage. But so, so many people use that passage and, and the Bible talks about your responsibility and calling uh, to be a witness. Uh, so technically, you're off the hook if you're being a witness, but you can never really tell what's enough. You know, like I could be out there all day evangelizing and you can always do more. Uh, so, so this level of anxiety and not ever really knowing if you're safe or if what you're doing is enough really compels people in an addictive-like cycle to seek religious means to expiate their guilt and shame and fear, whether it's through confession or obsessive compulsive practices of, of Bible reading and, and church attendance, because there's, there's a teaching, many churches will teach that you are safe to a certain level, like they'll say you have an assurance of salvation, but that's never really sure. There's still, they're also always preaching these judgment and damnation passages, and there's always a loophole for how you might never have been saved to begin with. You might not have been among the elect. You might not have been predestined, and you can't really know if you are, or if they believe you can lose your salvation. Well, then you might be good, but something might happen. So there's always a lot of anxiety and tension, and so you always have to be performing and uh, really obeying the dictates of the institution in order to feel safe. So interesting. Okay. Okay. And so I want to come back to something that you said in your introduction of you, uh, and then we'll get into some other issues. But when you were talking about suddenly feeling that you had this rude awakening and everything got turned on its head, then there was a part of you that was experiencing certain psychological symptoms and also sexual drives. And here you had come from this situation of, I think, being really devoted and, and adherent and believing. And then suddenly how you were feeling and how you were thinking didn't fit and you were wondering about Satan being involved. I wonder, how, first of all, how old you were when this started happening. And was there anyone you felt like you could talk to about it? Yeah. So I was in my mid-20s when this started happening. And uh, there were a couple people I felt that I could talk to. And I also found some support online, some supportive community and some therapy that I could, could get help with too. Uh, but it was still, it still felt pretty isolating because I was in seminary and I was also teaching and preaching and doing all these other things while it was happening. So it was very, very, very challenging. 
Did you feel like it redefined you in the way that you would kind of envision yourself or the way God would perceive you? Uh, definitely it redefined me in so many different ways. And I mean, I, th I think that really authoritarian and high control religious groups co-opt and to some extent constitute the ego or the identity. And so for people like me, I had a religious ego for my whole life and there, there never was a me apart from the religion. So a lot of people will have the experience, a lot of people that I work with, of coming out of the religion and feeling like they don't even know who they are anymore because they never existed without this whole religion that informed so many aspects of their identity. And so I really feel like I had to redefine myself and rediscover myself in many ways from the ground up. Wow, my goodness. Okay. I mean, needing to start all over again, but having it be where there is so much fear and confusion about not only how people go through times of self-exploration and really finding out who they are and what they're grappling with, but that when there is this abject fear, when there is this looming threat about what this means about you and your life and your future, makes it all very difficult to, I think, to parse out what is wrong about you or if there's anything wrong really at all, uh, or if this, these are all sort of natural variations and how you find that out. And I'm really glad that you were reaching out. And I'm wondering if that helped to clarify the fact that these things are things that are part of the spectrum of human experience and sexual experience. Yeah, I mean, it was indispensable. And just having interactions with the secular world and also being in a seminary that was a little more liberal and progressive so being around people who were comfortable with being sexual and drinking alcohol and just doing other things that were prohibited and, and who had more nuanced views also was helpful. You know, they would agree with me that a lot of the things I was raised with were pretty toxic. So having other perspectives, and that happens a lot for a lot of people that really interacting with other cultures and with just the wider secular society can really help and in some ways also feel threatening. I, I would say that there are protective and defensive parts of our psyche that step in that want to keep us safe. So if you are starting to question something that's linked with your core sense of safety, then fear of hell becomes a really this huge existential crisis. And uh, so then I would say that a lot of people, probably most people, find these two com competing drives in them, one that is seeking relief and truth, and another that wants to still have the benefits of the sense of safety and protection and, and all of the things with the religion. So it can be a, a, a back and forth kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, so interesting. I know we have a lot to to cover that takes you away or takes the story away from the personal into uh, so many things happening societally, psychologically, politically. And of course, I want to be able to move towards that. But I did have a question about you coming sort of forward, finding out who you are and how that impacted your relationships. There's so much fear about ostracism and about shunning and being seen a certain way, no matter how devoted you've been your whole life and how much of a believer you were that you can be, you know, set apart 
from the community. And there are some people who keep sort of their true selves a secret for fear of losing their family, for fear of losing that community. And so I'm wondering what happened with those relationships. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. So for me, I think I was more fortunate and that oftentimes evangelical and Pentecostal Christians believe that they have a duty to still be a witness to people who leave and they'll, they'll have a belief that they can still be won back. So shunning doesn't tend to be as much of a thing, but they, they tend to, to pressure though and, and not respect boundaries often. So, so a lot of boundary work has to be done often with people in those situations. So I wasn't shunned or ostracized, but you know, people definitely are. And depending on their religious group or cult group, that can be normative as well. Right. Oh, yeah. All, all too often. But I'm very happy for you that you didn't have that kind of wrenching experience for so many people and shaming experience. And I'm sure as we continue talking, there are going to be other stories and other parts of your personal life that you're going to tie in with what we're talking about. But is it okay if we switch over to some other subjects? Let's do it. Okay, cool. Very cool. All right. So this is very timely to a great degree with what's happening politically, with what is happening in terms of certain movements and sort of groundswells where you see people getting very caught up in a certain way of thinking mm, that feels more torch and pitchfork than reasonable to me and without civility in, in the same way that you would hope for a society to be able to interact. There is a kind of a totalitarianism that came through for some people in the, the last presidency that was alarming for some, but others, they sort of liked that there was a leader who was so definitive and so clear and so strong, and they could just sort of put everything in this person's hands. So it works for some and not for others, but I think globally, it made people concerned about the United States and what direction it was going in. And you used in one of the things that I was noticing about the work that you've done, you used the word fascist or fascism. And so can we start talking about that in some of your exploration of that? Yeah. So I have an article on my blog called God the Fascist when the Bible teaches fascism. So I don't think it's coincidental at all that many Christians, the Christian right and evangelical Christianity are embracing fascism because the model is there in the Bible and has been there for a long time. So there's an ideological match. And I, you know, I'm, I don't take an all or nothing view of the Bible here. Uh, there are plenty of passages that I enjoy uh, but I, I think it represents the ideologies and the biases and prejudices of the many different people who wrote it. And there are a lot of those biases and prejudices <laughs> throughout human history. And so there are some praiseworthy descriptions of a divine being uh, that I think we can enjoy or if you want to enjoy them. But there are also some very diabolical depictions, even devilish, of God. And, and so the biblical God or the model of a deity was based on an authoritarian king. And that, you know, so when people thought about what an all-powerful or, or what a divine being would look like, the model that they had 
was the king of a nation state. And this was a tyrant. Uh, that was the norm in, in a lot of ancient times. And so, I mean, the, the idea of God is based, I mean, the Bible says that fear is the foundation of, of God's rule, that, that to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. And, and you see people approaching God with, with fear and terror, and God regularly uses violence. And uh, the, the basis of this whole religious ideology is not self-actualization, it's obedience. It's all about obedience and conformity and submission, bowing down to the divine ruler. Uh, you, you know, so this is a totalitarian vision. Also throughout the, the Bible, there is a conquest narrative and holy war, our biblical jihad is commanded. The whole book of Joshua in the Old Testament is genocide propaganda. It's, it's meant to justify the, the genocide of, of the peoples that were living around the Israelites who are scapegoated and, and fascist scapegoat minorities and, and dehumanize people and label them so like sinners and wicked and apostates and evil and use capitalized on people's uh, sense of, of fear and powerlessness. And uh, so when people feel powerless to change their desperate situations, that's when they call in a strongman fascist who promises, I'm going to save you, I'm going to help you. Uh, you know, there are these, there's an enemy here who's threatening you. So, and then it was the, the Canaanites, and now it's the unbelievers. It's the, the people under the control of the devil. It's the secular people uh, who are going to bring in the wrath of God, and there's going to be a giant apocalypse. And so, you know, your divine mission is is to conquer people with the gospel, to convert them ideologically, bring them into the fold. And if not, if they won't bend the knee, then they'll be slaughtered by Jesus or condemned to hell. So this is a, you know, it, it uses an, an eternal fire. It's it's a very, a very, you know, like uh, what kind of being would imagine such a thing? I mean, would it be the devil if the devil existed? I, I don't know. It's It's pretty... It's pretty twisted. So the, a lot of things uh, in the Bible uh, really are, are just straight fascism, and uh, and they, not just in the in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. And you have this king God who establishes a theocracy uh, in the Bible and in the Old Testament, and it's all about submission. And many of the laws that God gives are actually not based primarily on morality. So people will say like, you know, this, this is just good morals. This is, we need the Bible uh, to be legislated because we need a, an objective standard of morality, even though there's all kinds of contradictory laws. But, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the laws were um, based on purity or cleanliness, this theological idea of purity and cleanliness. And uh, basically... A lot of them are are amoral or arbitrary or even impractical. Uh, and the, the the idea is you're going to obey this in order to demonstrate your devotion and loyalty to me. So you're going to circumcise yourselves. You're going to keep kosher. Uh, you're going to do all these things that go out of your way because I am the Lord your God and you are my people. I'm the boss, and and uh, you know this this is what you have to do to show it. So, so there's a lot of, uh, and there's also a very exaggerated threats that that God the fascist use 
of uh, life being a, a literal and an ideological battle between his worshipers who are the superior chosen race of God and those who are depraved and satanic and demonic. Uh, so really, I mean, this is this is fascism. It's not the only thing in the Bible, but it's it's a, a prominent model. And so it, it matches up. Okay. So there's so much there. And I think about, you know, I, th- I think about this idea. There's a this uh, Jewish story, an old one, where there was this person who was asked, a biblical scholar, a teacher from many hundreds of years ago, what the meaning of the Bible was. Like, basically, if you had to say it quickly, the term is al regal achad, like on one foot or on one leg. Like if someone's in a hurry and they need to know. And so the teacher, the rabbi, because rabbi means teacher, who said, basically, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you, period. And all the rest is kind of allegory and story and supporting documentation for that. What's so interesting about what you're saying is that that doesn't necessarily fit here because it it isn't that if let's say God is the boss, uh, I think about a boss who someone might go for an interview to work at a company, like converting to that religion. The boss doesn't say, you know, we'll either hire you to work here or you die. (laughs) So (laughs) what? Why is it that it's sort of not okay for people to just be other, for people to not be that or to not work for that or believe in that? Why do they have to die? And where does that whole golden rule fit into do unto others? There's so much that doesn't come together, which is what happens when you try to kind of apply logic to something that I think is so allegorical or is to really foster this psychology, the psychology of fear. And so I'm curious about about that, about this very black and white way of looking at it rather than accepting the other for their choosing something different, but that they have to be destroyed and eliminated from this earth. Why is that? Yeah. So it's definitely an all or nothing dichotomizing worldview. And I mean, I would say really that fascism is inherent to exclusivism. If you have this belief that your way is the only way, then any other way is going to be a threat. Okay. So it's the threat piece of it that says, so we're not going to be safe then if there are other people among us who are non-believers. Right. Because the non-believers are going to tempt us and cause us to backslide. It's this paranoid worldview that they might lead you astray and cause you to go into hell. So it's this very tenuous relationship. You're commanded to be a witness to outsiders and convert them, but at the same time, don't get too close. You better watch yourself because they might corrupt and change you. So this is why Christian nationalism makes sense within that perspective, uh, because really uh, you're living in a very dangerous world Secular people are a threat to your own welfare, and also they're kind of inviting God's judgment. Uh, So there's no real clean way to separate that worldview then from how you approach politics and morality, and because it's so it's it's so one thing, so cohesive, right. How interesting also, just this idea of this paranoid worldview. So when you're in it, it's very hard to see it 
for it being paranoid, especially if you've been raised within a particular community where you haven't really had access to the world outside to realize that it's not as unsafe as you've been taught. And that having friendships, relationships, alliances with people who are quote unquote non-believers still leaves you perfectly safe. But how will you know that if you haven't done it? And also if you've been made to feel too fearful of even trying it. So there's no way to push against those absolute teachings that are so laced with this paranoia. And I wonder, going back to your personal story for a moment, did you have that concern that if you were spending more time in the world with worldly people, talking to people who weren't believers, that something bad would then happen to you, that you were then more unsafe? Absolutely. And this was torture for me as an adolescent in high school, uh, because we had this indoctrination group known as the youth group, where you spend all your time in this youth group and they're constantly preaching the dangers of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and of having a good time and, you know, and, and watching out with your, your, your non-Christian friends and maybe cutting people off. If they, so I felt like I had to isolate and it was very isolating and, and hard to be in a secular school. And I was afraid of becoming too close with these people. And also, I felt awkward and anxious about evangelizing them. I just wanted to fit in. Group membership and your sense of belonging is also contingent upon this view of the outside world as well. So it's all tied up. Uh-huh. So I, I want to also go back to something that you said before we move forward, which is this idea of a stigma around mental health. And I know that's something that you have explored too, and that people can find some of your research on that. What I think is important here is that there's often a stigma, again, just in general, about mental health. I try to assure people that going to see a therapist still doesn't mean that you have a problem or you have a disorder or you have a diagnosis. You know, I think part of the wisdom that we have in the world is realizing who our resources are and utilizing them as needed. And that sometimes life is harder, but that for some people, they really do have depression. They really do have anxiety. They do have issues around self-identity or body dysmorphia, whatever it is. So tell me about the stigma. How was this talked about? Yeah, it's very difficult. For one thing, emotional suppression is taught and normalized. People are often taught that emotions like anger are dangerous or bordering on sin uh, or envy or jealousy or or some of these so-called negative emotions and that, that, that these positive emotions are lauded and exemplified. And so a, a lot of, usually I think people who are recovering from this have a hard time expressing and relating to their emotions. They're often very afraid of being angry, but they clearly have a lot of anger. And, you know, but but you might worry that your anger will just take over and destroy you and things like that. So that's one thing. Another thing is the common belief that psychological problems are caused by demons. This is another phobia that people will have. It's just the the phobia that if I think a sinful thought or do something sinful, that that I might get possessed by a demon. And so you you might have then these phantom images at night or being afraid of falling asleep because you're seeing these, these kind of shadowy figures or imagining them and 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 so those are associated with mental health issues and 
Uh, people will be encouraged to get deliverance, as they call it. And there are these different people who are trained in exorcism and uh, people with mental health issues will often be directed towards them. And they'll have these intense ceremonies and rituals of people laying their hands on them and yelling and then casting out the demon and taking authority and encouraging people to read the Bible and pray and often teaching too that they're responsible for their mental health issues because of their sin. And so it's it's some kind of an, a sin that they're not aware of or some kind of generational sin that they inherited somehow and or that it's a demon. Or, and so a lot of times people are discouraged from seeking mental health treatment or, or taught that it's kind of an inferior or less spiritual thing to do. That can also be the case with medical treatment in certain communities. I mean, there are a lot of groups now that have Christian therapists, so they'll, they'll discourage you from getting secular counseling, and they're often very skeptical towards psychology because psychology is often very critical of a lot of religious tendencies because they're abusive, many of them. Uh, so, so they know that and they recognize that and they have Christian counselors who then, of course, will reinforce a lot of the, the practices, te teaching people to have faith and pray and, and meditate on Bible verses. It can be helpful too, but there is a lot of stigma. Yeah, and I, I think about what happens within society in general, and it seems like it, it happens to a greater degree in these kinds of communities where you're already feeling overwhelmed by your emotional self. And it could be that you are just wired differently than the person next to you. And it doesn't mean anything except it's your DNA and that there is a hereditary component to some of the things that you are experiencing. And so, you know, there was no way for you to fend it off and you didn't invite it in. You just were born with that, with those natural variations that make life sometimes harder. And then you're already having a harder life. And then you're made to feel like somehow you did something wrong to cause it. I can only imagine then the people who just sink lower and lower because of this. And I'm sure that's something that you've seen. Big time, big time. Yeah, people will often believe that it's their fault. There's something wrong with me or have this extra layer of being terrified that there's a, a dark spiritual being that's tormenting them and they can't get rid of it. Wow. I've worked with a lot of people who were raised uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and others where there are a lot of visuals, you know, hellfire and demons and worries that a lot of people have at nighttime, especially in the dark, that something is going to grab at their feet or take them away or kill them. And so there are a lot of people coming out of these situations that have pretty severe sleep disorders until they realize that they actually are safe. And that takes some doing. And it's hard then to to deal with the darkness or to feel more vulnerable. And you don't believe it until you actually experience it over and over to know that you are just as safe during the day as you were at night and that you actually are not being sought after by a demon and you're not going to be possessed. But it's not enough for me to assure someone of that. They're going to have to experience it really on their own and deal with the fear that stays with you. And, and I wonder too about what you've seen about the lingering impact and how long it stays with you and what helps people be able to see that they actually don't have to worry about a demon that is after them. That's a really great point. It's a really common issue that isn't really spoken about that much. I definitely suffered many years with a sleep disorder, both related to fear of demon possession and fear of hell. 
uh, believing that if I didn't confess all of my sins, or if there was some way I wasn't right with God, that I might lose control of my consciousness and find myself awake in hell. So uh, I remember that as a very young child having that fear, and that's common. So yeah, with sleep, I, th I think a lot of what you're saying is sound in terms of kind of the exposure therapy and behavioral experiment type thing. I think that the fear tends to go away when people stop believing in the demons uh, and that they start to not see them once they stop. So it's, so it's almost like making that link with the fear can help. Like actually the, the cause here is the fear itself. If you do have this experience of like seeing something, what would it be like to get curious about it, to observe your sensations and to welcome that experience and to say, oh, what is this like? Is there something I can learn here? Or what does that look like? And more of a mindfulness type approach can really be useful in these kinds of situations where people learn like, you know, it's actually not actually threatening to have a scary image. Like there's no real danger there. It's really the hyperactivation and the fear. And when you can learn to welcome it rather than just to try to make it go away, then it loses some of its power. Mm -hmm. Any way that you can reframe is a really good thing to do. Yeah. And and I also think there there's some reframing that I do too around what's what's really demonic here or what's really evil or sinister people who are doing this kind of work are doing it because of their sincerity, because they want to heal. They want to be better people. They want to be more loving people. They want to come into a more authentic expression of themselves, a more integrated and whole expression of themselves. You know, so what would a, what could a loving deity possibly have against that? And, and how would that be an invitation for an evil spirit? On the other hand, living in fear of a tyrant who will torture you and, and burn you with fire and leave you open to being harassed if you don't obey his every whim and if you try to heal yourself. I mean, that's where the, the, the kind of possession is happening uh, with this ideological kind of possession, this possession of your identity and of your selfhood. So if anything's a spiritual possession or a sinister force, it's that. And it's also interesting how that kind of experience of a fear and torture it tends to go away when you stop believing in that stuff. I mean, so if we're going to even take a supernaturalist worldview, like which side is it on? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to uh, sociopolitical issues of the day, because I know there's a hot button issue with Roe v. Wade. And I would love for you to be able to jump into this with me, knowing also, and I'll do a caveat here, that this is not a political show and this is not a show that has a leaning one way or the other, but it's to understand why this is happening and where this is coming from, what's motivating these sorts of changes. And also to let people know, I think, within certain communities, within certain Christian communities where they're kind of fighting against the overturning of it, that they're at odds with each other over this. So can you kind of jump into this, this mosh pit, right? It's a messy, it's a messy place. And let's talk about it. Yeah. So this is part of a concerted political and religious movement that's been happening for decades. I mean, I remember when I was a kid hearing sermons and, and listening to activist talk 
about abortion and how it was the single most important issue, period, end of story. And, and they would actually call people to commit to only voting for people who support bans on abortion. Uh, so they would have abortion survivors telling their story, uh, like someone who, who grew up and was supposed to be aborted or a procedure didn't work and, and how they had a great life and contributed to the world, and, or women giving their stories about how they had an abortion and they regretted it and experienced trauma and and all and these these very visceral depictions of a fetus and how it can experience pain and and so they they would they would use these these kind of dramatized emotional stories and what is commonly believed by many christians and most christians who are evangelical fundamentalists or conservative christians uh, that uh, abortion is a life and death issue not just for the infants, but also for the Christians themselves and for the sovereignty of the nation, that the sovereignty of our nation is actually at stake here. And they base this on certain biblical narratives. So in the Bible, a lot of the Old Testament is about God proclaiming judgment against God's people through the prophets. And uh, one of the biggies, the big no-nos, was worshiping other gods. It was primarily about they were worshiping other gods and God got really jealous and wrathful about that. And also the shedding of innocent blood is, is mentioned as a reason for God's wrath in many passages. And the worship of others' gods could include child sacrifice. So like in 2 Kings 17.17, 17, says they the Israelites sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire and worshiping other gods. Even child sacrifices is not an entirely unbiblical thing. Like we, we have uh, a couple, like including with, with Jesus, but, but we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> so uh -huh. what happens in the Old Testament is God exiles Israel and it says the the land will vomit you out of it, and you know that that I'll bring national invasion, genocide, plague, all kinds of wrath is going to go down for this mass moral degeneracy and shedding of innocent blood, which is kind of seen as as so abortion is then depicted as this national genocide that we're perpetrating that we're killing millions of innocent lives who can't speak for themselves, and that this is fueling demon worship. It's like this, this mass child sacrifice demon worship of these foreign gods. And so all of this is happening, and it's provoking the wrath of God in Old Testament style, where actually what the result of this might be is a foreign nation invading the United States and conquering us and us experiencing mass death and mass warfare and all of the kind of biblical threats that happened for genocide and worshiping other gods. So for them, this is really a life and death issue. This is really about our nation being at, at stake and our lives being at stake because it's hyped up to that level. Wow. Okay. This really clarifies so much for me. I think about you know, when you see pictures of people who are 
kind of accosting people going in and out of abortion clinics or the doctors. And you see the intensity in their face and that they are so aggressive. Oftentimes what fuels aggression is fear, right? Scary people are scared people. So when you have this movement to just save the nation, it is so huge. So there is this idea that then there's going to be this mass destruction, kind of a la Noah and the Ark, like, you know, there's going to be, it's going to be big. And so we're going to do our part to protect everyone. So no wonder on the ground, it doesn't make sense. And this poor person who's going and getting an abortion for whatever reason, or couldn't sustain the pregnancy, or it might have killed her to keep going with it, or whatever the reason was, or because it was through rape, she's going to get accosted because she represents, and the abortion represents something much greater in people's eyes than what's happening there. Exactly. It's this massive genocide uh, slash demon worship. Never mind the fact that they're they're excited and praying for the apocalypse to happen. You know, there are many inconsistencies in this worldview. Uh, th- there's a couple things here. They also believe that life begins at conception, and so and that that every child has a right to life, and that unborn children want to live and can't speak for themselves. We could question that. I mean, would if a, a fetus could see its future, you know, and it was born the child of a rape uh, whose father was abusive to the 10-year-old mother and uh, that she had no money and no child support, you know, would it want to be born into that? I don't know. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. So what they do is they simplify very complex and nuanced issues and no one argues that life begins at conception. That's not the issue. The issue is uh, when do we grant people personhood? And it's also an issue of the bodily autonomy of women. Uh, So, you know, most anti-abortion people don't view a miscarriage as a murder or a death. So many pregnancies are end up in miscarriages and we don't we're not even aware of that happening. And if God thought everything had a right to life, then why did God design it such that so many children are end up in miscarriages? You know, uh, so, and at what point does the life of the woman matter and uh, and all the societal issues? You know, all these complex factors are not taken into account at all here. And then they also proof text a lot of texts in the Bible uh, when the Bible doesn't explicitly ban abortion anywhere, even though people were doing abortions in ancient times. Uh, and in fact, there are some biblical passages Uh, that are very not very pro-life. So that deserves another note here. I mean, it's it's an inherently inconsistent worldview because the Bible contains many inconsistencies because it is a collection of texts written by different people over a vast period of time who often disagreed with each other in major, major ways and who had often had inconsistent ideas. And when your beliefs force you to deny that and to say, that the Bible is completely consistent and cohesive and systematic, then you have to accept all of its contradictions and believe in opposite things and find a way to make that all work. So you're going to have people who are believing the complete opposite thing at the same time or or, or minimizing certain passages and elevating others. And then you end up with all these different Christian groups because that's what you have to do if you believe that the Bible contains no errors. Uh, So so in the Bible, I mean, so 
the, the sanctity of life and the right to life. How's this for that? Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants and cattle and sheep and animals too. Uh, that's First Samuel 15.3. That's God commanding the Israelites to genocide a people group. So they're explicitly commanded to kill the infants and presumably the pregnant women as well. Uh, so, you know, it's all good if God commands it, but then genocide's a problem when it's not in this view. Uh, so then women and children are portrayed in many places as the property of men, including in the Ten Commandments. So it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife or his slave, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So what belongs to your neighbor? His wife. Because women are property of men, and so are the children. Uh, so that's the sanctity of life. That's the evaluation of, of life in this worldview, that, that it, it's property. It's a patriarchal worldview. And uh, so this is also seen in another passage uh, that says, Exodus 21, 22, if people are fighting and someone hits a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely if she miscarriages and there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So uh, this passage says that if a man hits a pregnant woman and that causes a miscarriage, that's not considered a death. It's considered a property damage crime. And so that person just has to pay a fine because the preborn fetus, the preborn child in the womb, is not considered to have personhood. It's considered to be property, and there's a fine. However, if there's serious injury to the woman, then that gets the death penalty because she is a person. She is alive. So if they viewed the child as a life, this preborn child, then the death penalty would be the punishment because they are using the death penalty in the same passage, just not for, not for the abortion that takes place accidentally of this child. This is really very interesting. I know also I was raised within Jewish teachings that uh, you're supposed to save the life of the mother if she is being put at risk or dying because of childbirth or because of the pregnancy, that she comes first. Whether it is out of a sense of uh, sensitivity towards or just practicality, that here, if this woman dies, then she can't have any more children. And so if there is this edict to multiply and prosper, you can't have that if the women are dying or if they're let to die or the child is saved in their place. I also find it interesting during times like on Yom Kippur, when you're supposed to fast, they will say time and time again, if you're on medication, if you're pregnant, if you're needing to eat, do not fast. Follow this to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Don't put anyone at risk. Don't, especially don't put a pregnant woman at risk. And so then you have this sort of conflict between the letter and the spirit, and that which is a whole other issue. But here in these moments, so with this passage, and there are probably others too, you see something very contrary to how it's being talked about now. What else have you noticed that really flies in the face of it being overturned for religious purposes? 
well, this view of, of children and women as property or, or children as property is, is there in the Old Testament. And again, genocide is commanded by God. So there are all these dark trends. Uh, it, it's just not the, the Bible doesn't teach on abortion explicitly. And uh, so they will quote these texts as proof texts, um, like Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, I set you apart, I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So that's not a medical or scientific statement on the personhood of Jeremiah. It's about God having a plan for him in advance and knowing him while he was in the womb. And Psalm 139, David says, or attributed to David. You, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Uh, so, so again, this intimate knowing of him while he was in the womb. And then in Luke 141, Jesus leaps in the womb when Elizabeth and Mary greet each other. And, and so they use these proof texts to say that, all right, this is a living person that that, that is then killed. Well, again, people who are pro-choice are not denying that you know, that, that we have a living being being formed and that that's your history, you know, in the womb. We're, we're just saying that it's more complex and that when we grant personhood is, is a different thing. And that even that that happens in the Bible here, this level of complexity where uh, the personhood of the fetus isn't fully acknowledged. So these passages are, are theological passages, and they're saying that God had a plan for people while they were in the womb. And that, you know, again, which you don't really have to deny. It's not an inconsistent thing, and it's not saying, therefore, abortion is wrong. That's, they're making that extrapolation. There's also this text in Numbers 5, 11 to 31, where this man suspects his wife of being unfaithful to him, and so he goes to the priest and, and they proclaim this curse on her and make her drink this bitter water. It's this magical kind of a ritual. And if she is unfaithful, then her womb swells and uh, it will cause her to miscarry. The NIV says there, there's some controversy about the Hebrew and the interpretation of this text and whether it's an abortive procedure or not. Uh, the NIV explicitly translates it as being a, a miscarriage and causing her womb to swell. Regardless, I, I think that's probably the correct interpretation, but even if it isn't, you know, um, if she was pregnant, she's not going to give birth. She's cursed. And, and so if she was, a pregnancy was caused by her quote unquote unfaithfulness, if she did have sex with another man, that pregnancy is not going to be carried to term. So that would be an abortion. Okay. And so in all of these passages, I also wonder about the man's part in this. Right? <laughs> right? Because the woman did not get herself pregnant. Uh, and so is that ever talked about? Well, I mean, men are not supposed to have sex outside of marriage. So, and, you know, they, they will say that, you know, you're responsible if you made it happen. There's a lot of patriarchy involved in in these texts and often in these religious groups. Not not everyone is as patriarchal about it, but uh, you know, definitely the issues that this brings up for women are not emphasized either. Right. So it's so interesting too to talk about the timing of this because it sounds like what you're doing not only is in you kind of exploring yourself, moving on with your life, getting 
teachings, getting an education so you can go on and help people. You know, there's this really nice trajectory. Timing, I think, and the sequence of events always matter to me. And you wonder what causes something else. I'm wondering what you make of the timing of all of this, all these changes in the laws and why this is coming up now and why there is this kind of ferocity about it now. It's been happening for a long time. So to me, it's not surprising because I remember this stuff from my childhood. The timing has to do with a lot of different factors aligning and uh, really a tendency towards fascism because of the socioeconomic factors and the wealth inequality has continued to rise. And so people feel more and more disenfranchised and powerless. And in in this vacuum of feeling powerless and hopeless, you need a savior or a message that tells you that you're powerless and need saving, uh, such as the gospel. And, you know, so we have authoritarian people taking advantage of these things that are happening you're going to see fundamentalism, both religious and political, increasing, I think, in times when things get more and more desperate. Uh, So you can go one of two ways when that happens. And you can go in the way of more justice and making positive change, but then you can also go in the way of the opposite direction based on fear. Uh, So I think we, we see in certain ways an increase in both directions. That's what's going to happen when you have these kinds of disparities and, and big problems happening. Okay, so just as we are coming to uh, the end of our time in discussing a lot of important and big issues, there are a lot of things that I hear about, about people will say, you know, I, I need to hold on to the teachings, even if I've left the community or even if I don't agree with all of it, just in case. There's a lot of just in case belief. And that I think it has so much to do with what you've been told is going to happen to you should you not believe, or what is going to happen to you forever? This idea of being in hell, being tortured forever. I mean, it's something people can't wrap their heads around just in general, just that idea forever, but it just is very daunting and scary. And so there are people who still will be very worried that no matter how confident they feel that they made the right decision to leave or or to believe in a different way or to mm, abandon certain teachings that they think were really not true or not helpful to them, there's still this undercurrent of this fear-induced trauma that is very much connected to the afterlife, this idea of this ultimate punishment. So what do you think is helpful for people to be able to think about what would be helpful for them to kind of heal from this kind of trauma? Yeah, great question. And this is one of my specialties. I, I think it's it's helpful for people to know that it's not something they have to live with forever, that it's something that people regularly heal from and move on from and find significant, if not total relief from. There's a number of different ways to approach this. I mean, one of them is just sort of working on it on on a somatic level, learning to work with the sensations in your body and to observe them and to take take kind of mindfulness and emotional regulation when you're having something like a panic attack or a freak out moment and when you're triggered, just recognizing that in those moments that 
that might not be the best time to really go down a rabbit hole and and do all your searching that your fight, flight, or freeze response has been activated. And so often it's better to calm your nervous system so you can get back into a logical state to work through these kinds of things. Uh, so just to know that that's happening on a physiological level and then to know how to work with that. So then there's the the part about deconstructing the belief system that is very, very helpful for a lot of people or most people. So there's this what if question that creates the hook here. What if I'm wrong and what if they're right? And the way it's often framed in these religious communities is you shouldn't take the risk and they frame it as an issue of risk. So even if there's a 0.001% chance that this is true, I can't afford to take that risk because it's an eternal thing and it's so awful. Uh, so then people believe that, well, well, this, it's better to, to make the safe bet. Uh, so that will, can kind of drive you really insane with, with that constant questioning because you can't prove that it's not possible or that such a thing can't possibly exist because we can't know everything. But the frame, frame of it as a risk is not a, a proper way to view it. It's not actually a matter of risk if the thing can't be true to begin with. So what I say is that it's not a question of what if hell is real. It's a question of what if the religion is true and what they taught about how one goes to hell and what the kind of hell is is true. So it's kind of a fear that the whole belief system stands. So in order for there to actually be a risk of going to hell, you have to be able to prove and justify that the religion makes sense on every level, morally, psychologically, theologically, scientifically. And most people who have left or are leaving can't do that on any of the levels. You know, they found so many problems. Uh, so in order for their vision of hell to exist, which is what you're afraid of, you're not afraid of some random idea of, of hell. You're afraid of a very specific thing, and it has a very specific way to go to hell if you don't believe X, Y, and Z. Okay, so X, Y, and Z has to be true for there to be a risk of going to hell. So I want you to prove to me now that Christianity is true and prove to me that all the things you have doubts about, uh, that, that actually you're getting it wrong. So you have to actually establish that in order for the, the fear to be sensible or for there to be a realistic threat. And almost no one can do that. And also I, I encourage people to consciously choose their beliefs here so like to literally write out all the specific fears and then uh, say, if I wasn't afraid and if I, you know, with my own logic and sense of reality, you know, made my own beliefs, what would I believe? And they often find too that there's no substance to this belief in hell. There's no reason to believe in it. There's no there there. It's just a trauma response. It's just fear. It's only being afraid of it. But that's not a reason to, you need substance to actually believe in something. You know, just I'm afraid of, of uh, you know, the boogeyman coming to get me isn't actually a reason to believe that it exists, right? You need, you need some kind of evidence. Those are some of the, the things of walking through that, that kind of, of a process and that can be helpful. Very helpful. And I want to go back to the physiological part of it, to, just as we're finishing up. But 
first to be able to say that a lot of people will say, well, it would be, you know, hubris of me to say that it doesn't exist if there are millions of people who say it does and millions of people who will believe in it. And so that this idea that there's power in numbers, that somehow that solidifies the veracity of something that makes it absolute and true. And it doesn't at all, which is kind of mind blowing because you can have billions of people believing something and it still doesn't make it true. And so you're not up against all these people, but you're kind of up against a belief system that they happen to ascribe to. So just for people to know that just because they feel differently, they're not wrong. Yeah. Well, also that the people who believe in this idea of hell should be afraid that they're going there because there are so many other people who believe that they're going to hell because they don't believe in their religion. You know, it's just this ironic kind of a thing. <laughs> so, like, there are millions of people who believe and then who believe the people who believe are going to hell and then who believe something entirely different. So there you go. It's kind of even. It is kind of even. That's so true. And so you were talking about kind of helping yourself physiologically. So let's end with that because I know people get very tense. They get very anxious. They can feel it in their bodies. So what would be helpful in those moments? Breathing is my favorite thing. So deep box breaths, breathing in just as deeply as you can. You can hold it for a couple seconds if you want or not. And then breathing a little bit of a longer out breath. As often said, that can help relax the nervous system and doing that like four times or more if you need to. I really find meditation to be helpful and that doesn't have to be a religious or spiritual practice for many people, not everyone. It can be very useful and, and mindfulness, just getting comfortable with the discomfort, learning to observe it and, and to not feel like it has to stop right now, that it's okay for you to be anxious and have a racing heart and that, you know, uh, really so getting some level of detachment from it exercise, different things. And for me, I also, I mean, I, I can end on this too, that uh, I very, very much value spirituality, but I approach it in a rational, uh, scientific kind of a way in terms of uh, expanded states of consciousness and of uh, really integrating other facets of human experience that aren't often recognized in a lot of communities, including secular communities, but that are that increasingly so. Um, so that's also an interest that I have that I think people don't need to feel like they have to throw away entirely because, you know, they've lost this religious connection. Right, right. And I love your line about becoming more comfortable with discomfort, that a lot of people have been raised to find their automatic go-to when they're feeling any kind of discomfort, when they're questioning something, when they're not sure, they're used to being sure. And when you leave and there are some questions that now can't be automatically or immediately answered, it is very uncomfortable. But in those moments, it opens up the opportunity for there to be other answers that you just don't know yet. Thank you so much, Andrew, for all the research you've done, for sharing your personal story. I hope to be able to talk to you again and let people know, even though we'll be offering links, tell people a little bit about where they can find you and find the work that you've done. Great. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure. You can find me at lifeafterdogma.org. I have talks and lots of articles on, on these and related topics there. And uh, you can also book a, a free session with me if you're interested in working with me or just having a conversation or in doing coaching work as well. 
Uh, and then I have a, a Facebook support group. I, I gave you the link for that as well. So you can find me and my email address is there too on my site. Terrific. Oh, I'm so glad. And thank you to all that you're providing for people out there. It's really invaluable. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Andrew for sharing so much about the very, very difficult time he had. I think it is an incredibly powerful thing when he talks about healing hell drama, when he talks about the stigma of getting help, mental health help, when he talks about really being destroyed in terms of his self-esteem and feeling like his urges were making him satanic or coming from Satan when they were just naturally part of his wiring and naturally part of many other people's wiring. What I found so interesting about what he talked about is something that I come across a lot with a lot of my clients. And one is this idea, first of all, that you have the answer and other people don't. And the other people who don't are a threat. And so it's okay, actually, to be militant. I mean, you think about all the times throughout history that people were killed over religion. But something else that he mentioned that I want to go into a bit is this idea that among evangelicals, there are no errors in the Bible. I'm not here to say that there are or there aren't, but it is true that when the Bible was written, there are a lot of things that people then didn't know. Now, this is presupposing that people wrote the Bible, and there are some people who do believe that God wrote the Bible, and this is not to dispute that. This is my feeling that it was written by human beings, but human beings who had the information then. It would be like someone teaching a course on science even just 50 years ago before stem cell research before a treatment for AIDS, before we knew so much about different diagnoses, before we knew that the diagnoses shouldn't just be blamed on the mother, which happened time and time again, and that it had to do with DNA or it had to do with exposure to something. What I think is really important, though, is for people to know that if there is something in the Bible that just doesn't feel right to you, you want to be able to be in a situation where you have the freedom to dispute it, even mentally, because it could be that it just doesn't coincide with what we know about, let's say, children these days or relationships or women's rights or anything about how the world works in so many ways. It is not dissimilar from the idea of mythology, that there is a god of war and a god of water and a god of the heavens. And so maybe there is, again, maybe there isn't. But where you have an issue is when people say that this is the word of God, but what happens is the way that it's been interpreted condemns you, then you feel like you can't say anything about it and you can feel like there's something inherently wrong with you and that's how God sees you. Biblical texts have been written and rewritten so many times that it is nearly impossible, and I had a long conversation with someone who studied ancient languages, who actually has a PhD in ancient languages, who told me this, who's also a theologian, 
who said, there is no way for us to know 100% what the original writings were. And so this goes back to the Old Testament or the First Testament. What I think is so good there is for people to know that even if the congregation around them or the family that believes is condemning them, it doesn't mean if you believe that God wrote the Bible, it doesn't mean that God was condemning you for that, whatever that was. Because people have the words they've been given that have been passed along, that have been translated into different languages. And even within those same languages, there are other translations. If you go to a copy of the Bible in English, and then you have another copy of the Bible in English, the words don't necessarily match up. And now we're talking even about the same language. So I want to offer you this space where you can feel safe, where you can know that it could be a misinterpretation. Just put that out there and you don't have to say it out loud because it probably won't be met with the other person saying, oh, good point. But at least know it in your heart that if they're saying God doesn't love you, it just might not be true. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.